Pastor Daniel was on vacation this week with his family, and yesterday he officiated the wedding of one of his brothers, and we're delighted he could do that and look forward to him coming back renewed and rejoicing in Christ. Uh, but today, it's my privilege to help out. Pastor Jay is going to be preaching a very special topic he's preaching on. I'm looking forward to it. I, uh, I think you're going to be exceptionally blessed by that today. If you're visiting with us today, we want to thank you. Thank you so much for coming. And we're pleased that you're here, and we'd ask that in the little card folder folder in the back of the chair in front of you, there's a next step card. If you would fill that out and give it to one of the staff at the end of the service, we would be so grateful for that. Thank you very much. I have just two announcements. First of all, right after the service today, we have a greeters meeting in the fellowship hall, which is right over here across the hallway. It's going to be no more than half an hour long. How many of you went to the last one? First greeters meeting. Did we keep it to the next one? Except it's whatever I said we were going to keep it to. That I'm sure of. Pretty much. But we we will keep it to a half an hour. I will not keep you longer than that. Now, second announcement. Men's Bible study on every other Saturday, 7.30 uh, till 9 o'clock. We, uh, we really hope, gentlemen, that you will participate in that if you are available. For the church, for God's people, to be all that God intends us to be, there needs, in the broadest perspective, there needs to be two kinds of ministries taking place in the church. The first is the large group ministry, where we all gather Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. We worship together. We praise God together. We study the Word together. And we unitedly grow in our knowledge and application of the Bible and our love for Christ. That's a very uniting kind of ministry. It's absolutely essential. But that's not the only kind of ministry we need. There, there are other essential ministries that are not upfront ministries. And, and these cannot take place while we are staring at the back of each other's heads sitting in the chairs in the room. And so we need small group ministries. We need Sunday school, adult Bible study, women's Bible study, men's Bible study, where we build relationships, where we form friendships, where we make connections that become the basis of all those other ministries that God intends the body of Christ to have with one another. Folks, you can't minister very well to people that you don't know. You're not going to open up and share needs with people that you don't really trust because you haven't gotten to know them well enough. And in small groups, the application of Scripture can be much more focused on the, the actual needs of the members of the group. So don't settle for a comfortable, easy life in Christ by just coming at 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. You need more than that. God intends for you to have more than that. Gentlemen, I hope that you'll sign up and you'll participate in the Saturday morning Bible study here available at all. Now then, as we get started, we can quiet your hearts as we turn our attention to the Scriptures in Psalms 
71, verses 17 to 24. O God, from my youth, you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me. Until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You have done great things, O God. Who is like you? You have made me see my troubles and calamities. You who have made me see my troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I will also praise you with a heart for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with a lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, my soul also, which you have redeemed. And my tongue will talk of your righteous house all the day long, for they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. stand together. Let's lift up our voices and praise to God. Be dismissed to Union Church.
lived with corrupted people in a corrupted culture caused us to be dispersed, caused us to be separated from this world, and fully committed to His service. Make us to be servants who love you wholeheartedly. Lord, we confess our society and government that we we stir in the guilt, turn our culture, turn our government, humble our leaders, impose your will, your law, your grace on those people. Thank you for the privilege of partnering with missionaries in support of our faith. We serve in places all over the globe, and especially this day, we ask that Gary and Kelly Dunn, as they serve you in your training, and Mike and Dean Bradley and Dean Ed, Grow their ministries for the glory of Christ. And grow them in faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask for your grace upon every gospel preaching church in this ministry. May the gospel continue to faithfully preach and focus our gospel. May Christ be honored and glorified. Now bless this hour. The ministry of the word we thank you for Pastor Hill. Cause what we give to be far more productive than we could have all ever imagined giving. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I believe the ushers are coming now for the offering.
at what all of Scripture says, and we won't be able to cover it all. Uh, don't worry, that would, that would be a very long message. But we're going to cover uh, three questions about singing today, both from primarily from the Psalms and the two passages in the New Testament that focus on singing, Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.18 through 19. So we're going to ask three questions. If you're taking notes, it's, it's in your bulletin there. The questions are, why should we sing? Secondly, what should we sing? And last of all, how should we sing? So first of all, why should we sing? Number one, God commands it. Let's look at, look at Psalm 47. Psalm 47 is a psalm, uh, as you just, you could briefly look through there, but it's a psalm that rejoices in the victorious rule of God over all the earth. Verse 2, God is described as the great king over all of the earth. That, that phrase, the great king, is a phrase that kings at that time would use for themselves to show their superiority over the, the kings of the surrounding nation. So I'm the great king, they're all lesser kings, and God says, no, I'm the great king over all of the earth. There is no one in comparison to me. There is no competition to my kingship and my rule. And we get to verses 6 and 7, and we see the command. Look at it. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises, for God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a song. What, what's the main idea there? Sing praises to God. It's repeated five times in two verses. God's People are commanded five times in that short amount of space to sing praises to God. And you can't fail to get the point. And you sense the urgency there. And there's 50 such commands throughout Scripture for us to sing praises to God. So, imagine, if God came to you right now and spoke to you and told you to give $20 to the person in your life. I want you to give them $20. Give tw- take $20 out of your wallet and give them to the person on your left. For they need that $20. Give, give them $20 already. If God came to you and said that to you, what, what would, what would, you, would you get the point, right? God, God wants me to give them $20. So for God to command anything once is sufficient reason for us to follow that command. But five times in a short amount of space, you really sense the urgency of, of what God wants us to think about singing and that he wants us to be a singing people. And to refuse to sing is disobedience. And in general, with, with all kinds of commands, we all make excuses, don't we, for why we don't uh, and aren't following those commands. But any excuse that we give God is a bad excuse with anything. Our, our common excuses that we give God are, I'm afraid of what will happen if I do. Not just the singing, but just life in general and commands in general. God will still love me if I don't. It'll be awkward. It'll cost me too much. These are all relatable human emotions. We all feel those. We all succumb to those, but they're all bad excuses. And and in a church, some will make excuses as to why they don't sing. Typically, I don't have a good voice. Or I'm tone deaf. And probably the people around you will agree with that. Uh, Maybe I get more out of the message. I'm just not a musical person. And all of that may be true for you. But how many interesting passages does God give us for his commands? None. He gives us 
no escape hatches for his commands. So how are you going to respond to God's 50 plus commands to sin? And the 400 examples of them in Scripture. I hope and pray that you'll obey. If you're not a singing person, I pray that you will be a singing person. And I, I encourage you to this. And thank God we are a singing church. And maybe some of you don't, don't sing at the moment. But if God commands you to do something, it's for your good. What does James, what does James 125 tell us? It is doers of God's law who are blessed in their doing. Do you want to experience God's blessing? Do you want to experience the joy that God has for you? Then you will be blessed in your doing. If you sing praise to God, you will be blessed in your doing. I love how John Wesley put it in his direction to churches for singing. He says, if it is a cross to you, and it is for some of you to sing, if it's a cross to you, take it up and you will find it a blessing. for it. And not, of us, not all of us are equally gifted musically, but if you're not musically skilled, if you don't like your voice, if, 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 uh, and therefore don't like to sing, just trust God and sing. You know, and God will delight in that. So let me, let me give you a, kind of an illustration. Now, my daughter, our daughter is eight months old. She really wants to walk. Like, really bad. She's always reaching out to our fingers to grab onto them so she can walk. But when she walks, there's not a whole lot of skill there. She kind of looks, looks like this. It's even worse than that. And she's fumbling all over the place, but she's got this huge smile on her face, and she's loving it. She's absolutely loving it. And we're loving it, too, seeing that, that she loves doing that. We're delighting in that. Think of your singing like that. It may, it may sound like that look, but... But God delights in it. He says, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Not, not make a beautiful noise to the Lord, but make a joyful noise to the Lord. And God, God delights in that. And so that, that should make us want to sing because our Father delights in us when we sing. So God commands it. It's for our good. It's for His glory. And secondly, God deserves it. God is worthy of our songs of praise. We, we as human beings, we praise what we find praiseworthy. Many, many times in the song, immediately after the command to sing, we are given the reason to sing. Look again at Psalm 47, verse 7. It says, after the command to sing, for, for God is the King of all the earth. Let me give you a few other examples. Psalm 95, 1 through 3. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. In Psalm 98.1, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. And you see this over and over throughout the songs. And, and all of the songs, different characteristics and aspects of, about God that shows us that he is deserving, infinitely deserving and worthy of our praise. It's like the hymn Come Now Fount of Life. Streams of mercy, never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. It's God's mercy, it's God's greatness, His glory, His grace, His goodness to us. All of that 
deserves and demands and, and makes God worthy of our song of praise. God reveals his greatness. We respond with praise. That, that, that is, that, uh, that is the, the pattern that we see throughout Scripture. God reveals his greatness. We respond with songs of praise. After Israel is delivered from Egypt, what does Moses immediately do? He sits down and he writes a song. And then he teaches that song to all of the people of Israel and they start singing that song of praise. They just can't help singing because of God's great act of redemption and salvation. In Judges 5, we see the same thing. God gives Israel victory over battle and Deborah and Barak sing a song of praise to God. We've seen 1 Samuel, haven't we? I said we've been studying through 1 Samuel. Pastor Danny has been preaching. David is, for the last, like, I don't know, 10 chapters, he's been on the run for his life, and he's constantly being delivered over and over again by God. And what is he, what is he doing? We find out in the Psalms he's writing songs in response to God's deliverance and his, his work and his power in his life. He can't help but sing it in response to God's deliverance and salvation. In Revelation 5, what do we find? We find the saints and the angels in heaven singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. The Lamb was slain for our salvation, for our redemption. And we can't help but sing. And that's going to be the song of, of eternal praise that we continue to give God throughout, throughout the rest of eternity. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain for the sins of the whole world. God reveals infinitely worthy of all the songs that we could sing. Third reason that we need to sing is because you need it. I need it. Colossians 3.16 shows us the great spiritual value of singing for our life together as a church. Listen, listen to what Paul writes to the Colossian believers. He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. There's a great need in this, that this verse addresses, and that's the need for the Word of Christ to dwell in us richly. We need to ask a few questions about this passage. What is that Word of Christ? What is that referring to? Well, it, maybe it refers to God's Word in general, or to the words of Jesus in particular. It doesn't seem to be the case. There's other language that Paul could have used for that. But Colossians 1.5 really gives us a better understanding of what the Word of Christ means. Back in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul speaks of the Word of truth, the gospel. And then in chapters 1 and 2, he's explaining that gospel, that Word of truth, that message about Christ. And in chapter 8, Three, he says, let that message, that word of Christ, dwell in you richly. Let the gospel, that's what he's referring to, dwell in you richly. Now, here's the reality. All of God's people, every one of us who are true believers, have believed in that gospel. We've embraced it. But there's still the need for it to dwell in us richly. Just doesn't stay that way. We need to constantly be striving to cause the Word of God to dwell in us richly. And that, that word dwell there means make its home in us. The gospel to make its home, its residence in our hearts, in a deep, 
what a rich way. You know, isn't it striking in the New Testament how often Paul, for instance, preaches the gospel to Christians? We think the gospel is for non-Christians so that they could get saved. No, it it is for that, but the, the gospel is for Christians. Not so that we could get saved over and over again, but because we constantly need that message to get deep into our hearts because that is the way by which God sanctifies us and purifies us and empowers us to live life in obedience to Him in us and living out His mission for us on this world as His church. We, we all suffer from what Paul calls gospel amnesia. Gospel amnesia. We all forget the gospel. I, there is probably not more than five minutes at a time that I'm living in light of the gospel, and then I've forgotten it, and then I'm acting uh, as if I don't even believe the gospel by the way that I'm living. We're, we're content a lot of times with a superficial surface level understanding of the gospel. The result of that is that our Christian growth is stunted, Severely, severely limited, and when the gospel stays at a surface level in our minds and in our hearts, we, we will remain baby Christians. The way for us to mature in Christ is to get the word of Christ, the gospel, deep into our hearts, and that is where we find growth and maturity in Christ. And, and Paul says the way that you do that, the way you get the gospel deep in your heart, is through teaching and admonishing one another. This happens Sunday mornings in the sermons. It happens in Sunday school. It happens in your personal and uh, family devotions. It happens in your discipleship relationships. But Paul says specifically here, it happens when you sing. That's how you get the gospel deep in your heart, is when you sing. Songs are meant by God to help us to more fully embrace the truth of the gospel that we all have trouble believing. You ever come to church on Sunday and all is not well with your soul? You feel exhausted because of the constant problems you're facing at work. That test that you needed to pass in order to pass that class, you failed. The report from the doctor that you heard is not what you wanted to hear and it shocked you at all strengths. And now you're fearful of what the future holds. Maybe you come to church and you just can't get victory over that sin. And you keep asking yourself, what is wrong with me? Am I even a Christian? A lot of, a lot of us come to church and, we, and all is not well with our soul. I've been there on Sunday morning. Even leading worship, I've been there on Sunday morning. God uses those sometimes to change my heart, to help me to believe those truths that I'm really having trouble believing at the moment. When we sing a song at, the, at our church like, It Is Well With My Soul, you may not believe that to be able to say that from your heart at the beginning of the song, but I've been there in the past. Man, I'm by verse 2 or verse 3, reflecting on his gospel that all of my sins have been dealt with on the cross and all of my life is in his hands. And he says, man, 
restoration to Lincoln. The reason I got to this deeply in our hearts and sing this song is to help us believe that we're having trouble believing at that moment. So if you want the gospel to have an ever-deepening, transforming effect on your life, I want that for me. I need it badly. So we need to sing. We need to sing songs of the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. We need songs about the endless grace of God for saved people who never seem to be able to stop sinning. And we need songs that call us to lives of holiness and sacrifice in response to the gospel. You, you may have noticed that we sing a lot of songs about the cross here at church. And the reason for that is Colossians 3.16. We need the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. If, if the gospel, the message of Christ, is pushed to the periphery of our church, as if, yeah, we all understand that, so we don't really need to talk about that anymore. Talk about the real practical life stuff that we all face. Issues in life, how-to messages, which are good. But if the gospel's pushed to the outside, we will not be able to grow as a church and experience the kind of change that God has for us as a congregation. That kind of change that is empowered and strengthened by the gospel. The gospel has to be at the center of our life as a church. It has to be at the center of our worship services. It has to be at the center of our ministry to one another. Or else, the gospel will not be able to dwell richly in our hearts. Some of you might say, well, you know, I'm more of a Bible person than a singing person. You know, I just kind of endure the singing part of the service so that we can get to the real reason why I'm here, and that's the message. Maybe that's been you in the past. Maybe that's you right now. It's like, uh, the singing. Why do we sing so many songs? Why can't we just come to church and, and listen to the message? And, you know, I just want to thank God that you're hungry for God's Word. I praise God for that. But if you're a Bible person, if you're a gospel person, you need songs to make you more of a Bible person, to make you more of a gospel person, to, to take those truths that you're learning and studying and loving and drill them deeper into, into your heart. So we sing because God commanded it, God deserves it, and we need it. That's the first point. Okay, all right, that's, as you know with my preaching, the first point's always the longest point. Don't be afraid, fear not, fear not. All right. What should we sing? Uh, this is just to warn you. This is this is where it gets really practical and really controversial. Okay, so I I may step on some toes here. I'm not afraid of that. I don't do it intentionally, but but God God does give us direction in what we should sing to church. And there's lots of fighting in church, sadly, over what we sing. And pray that we would be a church that doesn't fight over what we sing, but we we just sing. We love sing praise to our God. There, there's some churches that have split over the issue of meaning. Some would say we should only sing songs written at least 200 years ago. Others would say we only need to song, sing songs that have been written in the last two years. And, and that's it. Whatever's like the, the, the worship hits right now. What, what's hot? You know, what, what, what's really resonating with people? Uh, we just need to sing those songs. And that's, you know, 
And we do it with all of these worship works in the church. This is a really weird thing to say, that, that these petty squabbles over, over musical style is a worship war. I, I love what Harold Beck says. He, he says, the only real worship war is between Jesus and Satan. You know, that's, that's the real worship war over people's allegiance to Christ or Satan. All of these squabbles that we have over style are, are really nothing in comparison to the real worship war. That doesn't mean, though, that we just sing whatever we want. God does model for us in Scripture the kinds of songs that we sing. And I know of no other book to really set, uh, set the, the focus and, and give us a, a broad and expansive view of what kinds of songs we should be singing than the book of Psalms, which was the songbook of ancient Israel. And so Psalms are not what we're limited to as a church but they really show us what kinds of songs we should be singing as a church. And you'll see, if you're following along in the notes there, we need to sing songs that are rich in theology and rich in expression, because that's modeled for us in Scripture and in the book of Psalms. First, we need to sing songs that are rich in theology. Martin Luther, you know I love Martin Luther, he said that the book of Psalms could be described as a little Bible in which everything contained in the entire Bible is found beautifully and briefly comprehended there. It's a mini-Bible. So all of the major themes and doctrines that you find in Scripture, you find within the Psalms. All of the rich theology that you find in Scripture, you find in these Psalms of Israel. And they're rich in theology. You have Psalms that celebrate, as we saw in Psalm 47, that God is the great King over all of the earth. You have Psalms that teach God's holiness, His wrath, His power, His salvation, His steadfast love. They teach us man's depravity and the need for our atonement that only God can provide. They teach us the doctrine of the Christian life and all of its joys and sorrows. They teach us of God's special electing love for His people Israel, but also of His future plan to, to bring His 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 gospel, and, and to bring the nation to be included in his kingdom. And they're there written for the coming Messiah. The Psalms have beautiful, breathtaking, ancient, rich theology for us. I, let me just give you one example. Psalm 139. One of my favorite psalms that has such beautiful, rich, mind-blowing theology. And we need this. We need this kind of theology as a church. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6 talk of God's omniscience. He's all-knowing. Verses 7 through 10 talk about His omnipresence, that He is everywhere present. Let me just read these verses to you. O Lord, You have searched, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from, from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Verses 7 through 10, his omnipresence. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? 
If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Now, when, when you read theology like that, it's better when you sing theology like that, you can't help but respond. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. You know, we need to sing songs that have such rich, deep theology in them that at times we're going to be saying, this is just too much to take in. This is just too wonderful for me to grasp. But it's true. It's the experience that I believe it and I need it. This glorious view of God that we need. This rich theology that we need as a church will shape our life. It will shape our theology as a church. The theologian and commentator Gordon Fee says, show me a church of songs and I'll show you their theology. Show me a church of songs and I'll show you their theology. Whatever church sings, that's what everyone's going to start believing. Because you, you are implying that these, these things are true about God and you need to believe them when you're, when you're singing them. If a song has bad theology, and if you sing it, you're saying it's okay for you to believe bad theology, you know, because the song sounds true. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, we need to sing songs that are rich in true biblical theology. So, let me let's just say real practically, there are songs that pastors at our church have considered, but we've had to reject because of one. One single line. I mean, the rest of the song could be great, but that one line is just it's not true. So we can't sing it. We can't teach our, our, our people untruth. We can't teach our people wrong doctrine. And we have, we've had to say, you know, the rest of the song is good, but that one line, man, we, we have to pass over that. Let me give you an example. Um, there, there was a song that came out a few years ago on the Lord's Supper. It's a great song except for one line. And it said, Sanctify our lives anew. Sounds like a nice worshipy thing. Um, and the, the problem is, when you look at the two aspects of sanctification in Scripture, you have positional sanctification, which begins when you believe in Christ and God sets you apart as holy, and, and by His grace, you make your initial break with sin to now live a life of holiness. That is positional sanctification. Then there's progressive sanctification, which is your progressive growth over time and increasing in godliness. And in neither of those senses does sanctify our life and we make any sense. God cannot newly give us positional sanctification unless you believe you can lose your salvation and you need to begin, which we don't as a church. And neither does it fit with progressive sanctification. It's not like you start over new with your progressive sanctification. It, it just it wasn't true. And then there's that otherwise great song that we had to pass over. And this other song is a modern worship song that we recently had to pass over because it used the, it used the word mistakes in reference to our sin. Otherwise, it's a great song, but... Jesus didn't die for your sin anymore. You know, that's a mistake, but Jesus didn't die for that. And we had to pass over it. And we weren't like excited about that. It was otherwise a good song. 
picked on some Google songs. Let me pick on an older song. And I don't intentionally mean to make anybody upset here, but I'm just trying to help you see. We think a lot about this this past week. We pray a lot about this this past week. Not to be nitpicky about these things, but but we pray a lot about sound doctrine. Because it affects the way that we live. Pick, a, pick an older song. You may know the hymn, At the Cross, At the Cross, Where I First Saw the Light. Everything about that song is the last line. And now I am happy all the day. Is that what we want? Yes? Of course, that's what we want. We want to be happy all the day. Is that what we're going to be in heaven? Yes, happy all the day. Is that what we should expect from the Christian life now? David's happy all the day. No, he's sad a lot. He's, he's sad a lot. And that's, that's the doctrine of the Christian life. There's joys and there's sorrows. We're not happy all of the day. And to, and to sing a song that, that our congregation now feels like, if I'm not happy all the day, something's really wrong with me. Am I even saved? You know, that one line is not true. So, you know, we, we don't sing it as a church. How do we seek to apply this as pastoral staff as a, as a church, singing songs that are rich in theology? Well, we, we care far less about when a song is written than what that song says. care a lot less about when a song is written than what that song says, its theological content. If a song is rich in theology and it's singable and it's great to sing, it really doesn't matter whether it was written in 2018 or in 1820, as long as it's great theology. You know, on, on some Sundays we'll sing Amazing Grace, just, you know, to the traditional tune. Other Sundays we'll sing Chris Tomlin's additional chorus to that. And, and both are great. Both are rich theology. And, and both stylistically show us different elements of that truth and, and, and maybe speak it in, in different ways into our hearts. In the same service, we may sing, Be Thou My Vision, which the original lyrics to that were written over 1,000 years ago. Uh, we, we sing the modern English translation of it. Uh, it wouldn't make any sense to us otherwise. Uh, but it's a really old song. And on the same Sunday, we may sing a song that was written in the last year. Why? Confuse people, to throw everybody off, to be like, what is wrong with this church? Why are they singing all of these different kinds of songs? No, because what matters most of us, most to us, is songs that are rich in theology, whether they're old or new. And in singing songs that are both old and new in our service, we, we do go against the trend that you see in, in some churches who have separate services for a traditional worship service and then contemporary worship service. And while I understand the heart behind that, which is, I think it's genuine and it's a desire to serve, is that you don't want to alienate the older generation and you don't want to alienate the younger generation. So let's just give each generation their own service for what they like. The long-term effect of separating the church based on style of music communicates things that sometimes communicate. It communicates that it is a style of music that remains 
and not the gospel. And it communicates both to the church and to the world that we can't love each other enough to prefer each other to meet together at the same time on Sunday. We can't prefer each other's musical preferences above our own long enough to meet together anymore. We want to communicate that to the world. We want to communicate to the world that, you know what, we love each other, and sometimes we're going to sing songs at our church that I don't particularly like, but we love them. We love them. And, and maybe I'm the only person in the church that doesn't that seem to like the song, but because everybody seems, everybody else seems to be resonating with it, I'm just going to sing along. And I may never love this song, but at least I could enjoy it for the sake of my brother and sister in Christ. And, and at the very least, for the, the rich theology of God that's in that song. And so I just praise God. You know, let me just say this, this as, as worship leader and worship pastor at church. I just love sitting on Sunday mornings, looking out and seeing our older generation singing the new song and our younger generation singing the old song. That is beautiful. That is the power of the gospel in the church. Not some doctrine. Wonderful to see. So, yeah, two more, two more points of application before we move on to rich and expressive. Which is where it gets fun. Uh, it gets real fun there too. Um, there are there are songs in Christian radio that are hits, uh, but we don't sing them at our church. Couple reasons. First, it may be a great song theologically, but it's just really hard to sing. Uh, it would be really hard to sing for a congregation. It may not have even been written for that. It was more written for the radio, and so uh, they may be true and definitely listen to those songs, but. It, it probably wouldn't work in a congregational setting. Second reason why we may not song, sing a song that's a hit on the radio is because it's, it's just not true. You know, it, it's just not theologically true. It, how many song, how many views a song has on YouTube does not determine what songs we sing as a church. A song may have 52 million views, uh, but it's not true. If, if it has wrong doctrine in it, we just we're not going to sing it at a, a church. And uh, we want to sing songs that are rich and true and, and theology. We, we do sing some songs here that are widely used uh, within the church because they're true and they're great songs. But uh, just because something is popular doesn't mean that we should sing it. And last point of application before we move on, I'm talking a lot about rich theology, but that doesn't necessarily mean just like super heady, confusing theology all of the time in the song, uh, in our song. Psalm 117 is a two-verse song, and it's really simple. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all people. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Great theology. Really simple. There's room for that as a church. We need songs like that. You know the old song? When you sang it at church or at camp growing up, God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me. It's repetitive, yeah. Uh, and we need that repeat. It's a beautiful song and it's absolutely true. We need to sing songs like that are, that are simple, that can take maybe one truth and dwell on that for a while. Even repeat that until it, it sinks deep into our hearts. Theology is not the enemy of worship. 
It's the fuel of worship that we need as a congregation. And our songs should be filled with rich theology, and our songs should be rich in expression. There are songs like one, Psalm 150. It's a, it's a song I loved growing up in my church. It's very much subdued in our worship, but in that psalm it talks about cymbals and, and dancing and, and, and loud noise and shouts. And I'm like, why don't we ever do this? You know, we should be doing this, and, and we should. And psalm, but the, on the other hand, there are psalms like Psalm 42, which express, why are you downcast, my soul? Deep sorrow to God, yet Psalm 53 that expresses our, our deep sorrow over sin. You have Psalm 119 that expresses our delight in God's Word. And every other emotion that you could possibly imagine that you would go through in a Christian life is found in the Psalms. John Calvin called the Psalms an anatomy of the human soul in which every possible emotion that you could go through are found here. And you learn how to express those emotions, both the heights of joy and the depths of sorrow to God. We want to sing songs of faith that are full of joy and celebration, like open up the heavens. That, that's kind of a, a rising, up-tempo, maybe make you want to you know, move a little bit. That, that's, that's not a bad thing. It should make you joyful. You should, you should want to sing with joy to God. And that's a great song to sing with joy because we're, we're calling out to God, God, come and lead us in a powerful way in this service. We want to see your power and glory. We should be excited about that. We should have joy in our hearts over that. At the same time, we want to sing songs that express our sorrow and our brokenness over sin and our doubt. Our Christ is truly so wonderful. I love that song. I love that song because I need it. It's a song that's honest about our doubt. It's a song that uh, is about our lost battles with temptation and our hopelessness at times but that Christ is our sure and steady anchor in those times. I need that song. And, you know, that, that song, side note, was actually written. There was, a, there was an article that came out, What Can Depressing, What Can Depressed Christians Sing in Church? And that song was written in a response to that. So, that's a song for depressed Christians, and we need songs like that in our church. We need the gospel this morning in our times when we're downcast. So we need all kinds of emotions to be expressed in our worship to God. And this is where a lot of the debate happens in churches. Typically, younger generations will look at the music of the older generation and they'll say, there's no joy. And then the older generations may look at, at the music of the younger generation and say, there's no reverence. As if the two are pitted against each other. They're not. We need both. We need the joy. We need the reverence. Scripture calls us to both. We need songs expressing joy with loud music, singing, dancing, and, and that's just as pleasing to God as a song of quiet reverence before God in His holiness. We need both kinds of songs at our church. You, you may not feel joy on a particular Sunday. So singing an up-tempo song like Open Up the Heavens really may not be resonating with you on that Sunday. But, remember, Scripture calls us to rejoice with those who rejoice. You know, the person beside you may have just gotten a raise at work, and they're just so excited to be here and worship God. Rejoice with those who rejoice. 
On the other hand, it tells us to weep with those who weep. The person beside you may have just received some really, um, really tough news. Or they may be experiencing significant loss and pain. Weep with them and they're crying. So you may, you may not be able to, at the moment, resonate at an emotional level with Christ the care and study angel because everything's going great, but for the sake of your brother and sister, and sing it in such a way that you're singing to them. Believe me, this is true. And last of all here, it's okay to express emotion in worship. It really is okay to express emotion and worship. And I know that's not like, that's not what we do uh, a lot here, you know, in our Western culture. We like to keep things pretty subdued. We don't like to wear our emotions on our sleeves. But, man, we, we find that model throughout Scripture. We find, we find the clapping. We find the dancing, the shouting, the lifting your hands, the kneeling, and the bowing down. And I just want to say, do that in, in your worship. Be expressive in your, in your joy. Be expressive in your sorrow. Because God calls us to that. God, God, God didn't make us just brains on sticks to, to kind of come into church download some information, and then go back home. God made us human beings, body, mind, and soul. And God intends for us to feel things deeply and to express those things with our body in praise to God. In appropriate ways, obviously, but to express our praise to God in all forms of ways. We sing songs that are rich in emotion, rich in theology. Last of all, how should we sing? Three ways that we're called to sing as a church. First of all, with an eye toward God. Ephesians 5, 18 through 19 says, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Making melody to the Lord with your heart. When we're singing, God is our primary audience. All of our praises are being given to Him because He's worthy. We're not just singing. We're singing to God. I love, again, how John Wesley puts it. He says, above all, sing spiritually. Have an eye to God in every word you sing. You ever kind of like clock out for a while and you're, you're, you're still singing, but you're thinking about other stuff? It, we need to be directing our attention to God every word that we're singing. Thinking about it and directing our praise to God. Sing with an eye toward God and an eye, secondly, toward one another. Ephesians 5, 19 says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This goes hand in hand with Colossians 3.16 where we're told to teach and admonish each other with our songs. Remember, we're not just a bunch of individuals who come to church for a personal worship experience. We're one body in Christ. And we need others to sing truths that we're having trouble believing at the moment. We need to address each other as we sing. Sing to toward one another, and last of all, we need to sing with an invitation to the Lord. Psalm 105, 1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the people, the unbelieving people. So verse, tells, verse 2 then tells us, how, how are we to make God's deeds known among the people? And He says, Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Tell of all His wondrous 
works. It's in our thinking that we tell the unbelieving world around us how great God is and how He endures and fasts. You may you may say, I'm not I'm really not good at evangelism. I could do this. If our singing can be a form of evangelism, as we as a church together proclaim loudly with our voices that Jesus has died for our sins, that He has risen from the dead, He has ascended into heaven, and all those who repent of sin and put their faith in Him will be forgiven and given the gift of eternal life forever with Him. We can sing and we need to sing. So our song can be a witness to the world of the truth and reality of the gospel. I heard a song of one worship leader who told of a couple who started to, to come to their church. And the wife was a believer, the husband wasn't. And she noticed as he was leading worship, you know, week by week, the husband would never sing. But after a few months, she noticed that he started to sing. Strange thing. He started to sing just week after week, hearing the gospel, hearing people sing the gospel. He finally started to believe the gospel himself. And he started to sing. And that may be you. Maybe you started coming to faith and not believing. But now after hearing the gospel preached week after week, you're hearing people singing the gospel in front of you. I'm starting to believe. And I just want to say, Christ lives. Christ came. came. Christ has died. He has risen. He is our only Savior. Believe in Him. Week by week at the congregation, we can declare the truth of the gospel as we hear with it in our songs. So churches tells us to sing like we really believe it. Don't sing amazing grace expressionless. Sing amazing grace like it is amazing. Don't sing a mighty fortress is our God as if God is a weak and boring God. No, he is a mighty fortress. Church, sing like you really believe it. Show the reality of Christ by the way that we sing to him. Since faith God calls us to be a singing church. He's worthy of it. We need it. The watching world needs it as well. And by grace, and by God's grace, as we grow in this as a church, I tend to fall into the trap in believing that by our great singing, we gain access to God. Gain access to His throne. It's not by our great singing or any of it any other good or righteous thing that we gain access to God. It is only through the blood of Christ that we gain access to God. And that's what enables sinners like us to boldly sing praise to God. If we believe it. So, Heavenly Father, we pray, we ask that you would show us your glory and your power, that you would, as you have and continue to do, make us ever more a singing people, for your glory, for our good, for the gospel to dwell deeper in our hearts as a church, and for the sake of the world who desperately needs our gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to respond to this message in singing. We're going to sing a
We're going to go back to the 80s this morning. <laughs> We're going to sing, We Will Glorify. Uh, so, so, how many of you know this song? Power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let's just take a moment now uh, to take a seat and for a silent reflection. Let's, let's uh, respond to this message and the truth to, to be a singing people that gives all the praise to